Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode CLXXXIV, The Siege of Mutina. As Antony heads north, he finds the city of Mutina defended by Decimus Brutus. Antony lays siege, but he doesn't count on a young Octavian leading the army to confront him. Here's Rhiannon Evans. To set the scene, it is the end of 44 BCE. Antony is consul until the end of the year. So time's running out and he decides, right, I need a, a good base of operations to essentially fortify myself. Caesar did good things up north and to the west towards Gaul, so maybe that's an option for me. Yeah, there's a concern for every consul coming to the end. You know, it's only a year. It's not a great deal of time that they're in office to know where they're going to be a provincial governor, so a proconsul. Yeah. It's called proconsul instead of consul because they carry on having consular power in that that area. Usually their term of office is for a year. Um, Caesar, of course, got five years in Gaul and significantly extended what Gaul meant. Mm. And then he got it extended again. So Antony's asking not only for Gaul, but for five years. And he's been given Macedonia in northern Greece. And he doesn't want it. It's too far away. Uh, he's got a couple of legions there. He wants them brought over to Gaul. He's got all these demands. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't sound like anything in contemporary politics at all. Things that the Senate won't accept. So it's all ready for a standoff. What he wants specifically is Cisalpine Gaul, which yes. is now essentially northern Italy. Yeah. So what's good about that area? I suppose easy access to Rome for one. Yes, it's very, very close. It's basically Italy, you know. If you read ancient texts, there's, it's often, even Caesar himself in his uh, Gallic Wars will say that he's gone back to Italy mm. and he means Cisalpine Gaul during the winter. So it's already conflated with Italy. It's very close to home. It's got a lot of powerful legions already. Uh, it's got fortifications, as you say. He's not going to be far away from the seat of power. And it's a, just a good base for him to have. Mm. And he wants security of more than one year. Yeah. And for all of these magistrates, having the next place to be, I mean, Macedonia would give him this as well, you could argue, but having the next office means that they are insulated from being put on trial. Okay. So it's fairly transparent, I think, what Antony's trying to do here. And the Senate is full of, you know, smart, learned men. So how do they take these requests that Antony's putting towards them? And I feel like requests is kind of the wrong word, but how do they take? <laughs> well, it, it's a, it's much more than requests. The Senate does not take it well. And uh, Cicero in particular, this is not the beginning, but it's certainly the solidification of he and Antony becoming firm enemies. And Cicero starts in late 44, September 44, issuing a series of speeches. Uh, when he goes to the Senate, he stops coming after a while in, uh, at certain times. So some of these speeches we have, which we call the Philippics, mm. which is a the complicated reasons for that is... Oh, yeah. see the previous episode. Oh, okay. Yeah. I won't repeat that then. In the Philippics, some of which he doesn't give in the Senate because he's refusing to go, but he writes them up anyway. All of them are anti-Antony. And he is kind of the most extreme against Antony, but the Senate, there are a few who want to make peace, but on the whole, they tend to go with Cicero. However, it's more complicated than Antony just requesting Gaul for his province because he gets the people of Rome to pass a law making him the governor of Gaul. 
So this is also technically a clash between the Senate and the people, mm. which is not good because the Senate and the people of Rome is kind of meant to be one group that makes Rome strong, right? SPQR. But Antony has the people on his side. So he can say he's acting legitimately as well. The Senate argues, well, you've been given Macedonia and somebody else, Decimus Brutus, has been given Gaul. So you're ousting him. And Antony can say, but the law was passed by the people, which is perhaps one of the weaknesses of the Republican system, that you've got these two bodies at the moment acting uh, in opposition. Also, Octavian has come back with 3,000 troops just outside Rome. Mm. And so there are arguments made in historical texts. Largely, we're dealing with Appian, book three of the Civil Wars, and Dio, book 46 of his Roman history. Both of them have people in the Senate make the argument that Octavian is acting extra-constitutionally. Mm-hmm. As we'll see, there's a lot of bargaining that goes on at this period towards the end of 44 and into 43. And Octavian is sort of being drawn towards the Senate at this point. Some would say he's been used as their pawn, uh, which we'll come to. But this is something that you can say, well, there's somebody else in opposition to Antony acting in a way that's absolutely against the Republican constitution. Yeah, yeah. But you got to kind of wonder if you park 3,000 troops outside of Rome, who exactly are you threatening? Yeah. No, you know, it could go either way at that it, point. It could, it could, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I guess that uh, one of the things that has happened, which must have been a thorn in Antony's flesh, is that two of his legions have deserted mm. to Octavian. And Octavian, of course, is popular. He's very, very young, by the way. He's, he's 18, 19 throughout this period. And he's got the Julius Caesar name now. So even though we're calling him Octavian, officially his name is Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. Yeah. And um, he's got the glow from Caesar's name. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and who is uh, Decimus Brutus, who is the other kind of player, I guess, uh, on the board at the moment? And uh, what position does he occupy? So he has been given Cisalpangal as his province for 43. He had been loyal to Caesar, but he had ended up joining the assassins and was the person who went to get Caesar from his house uh, on the morning of the assassination. Mm. Ironically being named in Caesar's will, so shows that Caesar didn't quite see the writing on the wall there, did he? Yeah. And Decimus kind of breaches all the arguments that are going on between the Senate and Antony and says, it's not right for me to give up my province. I've been given this province. And he seems to imply, at least in the way it's reproduced in Appian, that the reason he shouldn't give up his province is that all the laws of Caesar are being upheld. There's been a general agreement on that. Which is true. There was an an amnesty. Everyone kept their positions. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a way of not going straight into civil war. Mm. Only delays it, really. His position in Gaul is one of those rulings of Caesar. Mm. So if you're going by that, you can see how you can see it in all these different ways as a kind of legal version of what is happening. Mm. For, For Decimus Brutus... If these rulings are going to be upheld, then he has the right to be in Cisalpine Gaul. Which is, you know, by that argument, fair enough. So he refuses to give up his position. But despite that, Antony decides to go north and attempt to dislodge him. Yeah. And Decimus knows that Antony's army is too strong for him. And according to Appian, and I have to say, some things we only get in Appian. I'm not sure we can trust them if we only get them there. Mm. But Appian's got a fairly good track record. Appian is very pro-Antony here. Okay. And no, I'm not saying Appian's unreliable. It was one or two places where scholars say, well, this seems like a really important 
big event mm. and it's only in Appian, so can we trust it? Okay. This is one of the places I'm not really sure about it because it seems so extreme. But he says Decimus invents a letter from the Senate. So that's kind of... Forgery. That's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Which summons him back to Rome. So this gives him a reason to leave Gaul because he knows that he can't win against Antony. And he goes through all these various cities that let him through because they know he's going out again. They don't want to face Antony either. But when he gets to Mutina, which is modern Modena, he kind of barricades himself in there. I'm sure the people of Mutina are just really pleased oh, about okay. this. Oh, so, okay. So he gets that far. Yeah. It wasn't that that was his starting position. No. Okay. He's come south into Italy. Yeah. Right. Okay, so we've said that Octavian's outside the city with 3,000 men and being, you know, the legitimate heir of Caesar. So this is essentially a weapon that the Senate can point and direct. That's almost what they see him as, I think, a young boy that they can use. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting in both Dio and Appian, of course, they're both writing way after the event. So with the benefit of hindsight, they both see Octavian as someone who is being used as a pawn, mm. but he's also aware of it. So they position him as very clever. So yeah. he's, he's, we'll see. He doesn't get what he wants out of it, but he's aware that he has power and that he's using it for the benefit of the Senate at the moment, and therefore they should owe him. He's under no illusions that the Senate really holds him up as, as this great commander. Mm, mm. And so the Senate, they do try to negotiate with Antony at this point, but it's, it's largely unsuccessful? Well, some of them do. So notably, we get mention of Lepidus and Plancus, who are sent to do some kind of negotiation. But we get the sense in Cicero's speeches that Cicero thinks this is a waste of time. Mm. And a lot of, especially the later speeches, start out with basically saying, peace is a really great thing, but sometimes it's just not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah peace is great, but then there's Antony. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Cicero is more or less trying to persuade the Senate that this is a lost cause and we need to take on Antony. And look, we've got the heir of Julius Caesar with 3,000 troops and we can give him more help. Okay. So what do they do? They fully embrace him at that point? They give him all kinds of honours. So he's given a senatorial position. Wow. Yep. That's young. Out of the blue. Very, very young. He's also given the rank as if he had been in the Senate for years. So if you've been in the Senate for 30 years, then you'll speak first. Yeah. And if you've only been in the Senate six months, they'll probably never get to you. Yeah, okay. So he's given rank as if he has been there for years. What? This is looking way to the future. You're not meant to be consul until you're 42. Yeah. That has occasionally been broken. But, you know, it really shouldn't be. He's given the right to be consul 10 years early. But that's still 13 years in the future because he, as I say, he gets to 19 during the year of 44 and quite mm. late on in it. So they're positioning him as, as a great power in the future and giving him a lot of authority now, including a public statue. Wow. Funding for his armies. That's what he wants more immediately. Land for any veterans. And they make a ruling that Antony has to go back to Macedonia. Well, he hasn't been there yet, but he has to be in Macedonia and a kind of threat that he will be made a public enemy. Our texts are a little bit confusing here. Appian in particular calls him a public enemy a bit early. It's not going to happen till April 43, mm. at, at the end of our episode. Yeah. But there's very much this idea that that's something that's coming upon him, or Cicero wants us to have that impression. So yeah. that means it's legitimate to wage war against him if he's a public enemy. That's definitely an escalation. At this point, you've got Antony knocking on the door of Mutina, Decimus Brutus kind of holed up inside. So they send 
Octavian and his army north. Yeah, so they've given him imperium, basically. They make him a pro-praetor, so they give him this other rank so that he can fight at the head of an army. That's nuts. <laughs> Sorry, it's just... Yeah, I mean, I realise desperate times. But yeah, okay, off you go. Yeah, it's a real state of emergency. <laughs> so that means he can legitimately lead that army. Yeah. So when he brought that army to outside Rome, it was illegitimate. It's basically... It's it's an army of bullies mm. is what is the status that it has. And that's a lot nicer than it should sound. He's bringing an army against Rome. He's declaring war on Rome, technically. Yeah. It could be. But they give him the consuls, Hirtius and Panzer, in particular Hirtius. They don't give him. They, he, they accompany him. Yeah. But they give him armies with them at the head of them. Yeah. Both consuls. Yes. Mistake, yeah. I feel. Okay, so these are the new consuls now that Antony is no longer the consul. Mm, so we're into 43. Yeah. Lepidus, who's been trying to negotiate peace. Lepidus is the governor of Transalpine Gaul, so over the Alps. And Plancus are both ordered to help Octavian. Mm. Now, part of the reason that the Senate is so keen to bring Octavian on side is that he's got 3,000 troops and they know that he has somewhere a reason to be allied with Antony in that they were both allied to by family or by kind of long campaigning and political alliance. They have this commonality with Julius Caesar. Yeah. So if they decide to go against the Senate and the assassins, then they can't be beaten with these 3,000 troops and the armies that Mark Antony has and the experience that Mark Antony has. So that's why they want to bring him on side. And Appian states outright that the assassins really fear Octavian's reconciliation with Antony because Mm. their position is kind of tenuous enough with the people of Rome. And they know that if Octavian and Antony get together, then there'll be vengeance for the murder. Yeah. Which, spoiler, is what eventually happens, but it takes a while. But I suppose, you know, if we're giving Octavian a lot of credit for playing the long game here, maybe he realises that if you want Rome, you need the Senate. You don't need Antony. Well, who knows? I, I can't read <laughs> yeah, his mind. But he, <laughs> that's true, I think. However, it's clearly in the interests of the assassins to... It's basically divide and rule, isn't it? Mm. This is something that Appian goes into in book three of the Civil War, chapter 61. He kind of looks at the different interests and a psychology of what's going on here. So while Hirtius, the consul, goes north with Octavian... Yeah, Dio's very cynical about this. He says that Octavian forces him to come because (laughs) he's worried about being captured if he's alone. Right. I do wonder... There's a lot in Dio and Appian about Octavian being a bit rubbish as a commander, which is not surprising at his young age. Mm. Not just here, but later too. I don't know whether that's based on actual contemporary histories or it's something that they've decided a young man couldn't possibly be any good. So he needs a chaperone. Yeah. And and remember, (laughs) Hirtius is someone who has a long association with Julius Caesar. He had been in Gaul with Caesar and, in fact, had written book eight of Caesar's Gallic War. Oh, this is that guy. This is Hirtius. Oh, okay. Okay. The other consul, Panza, stays in Rome and the kind of surrounds of Rome to raise more troops. I mean, this comes up later, but he gets some very new recruits. Mm. So it kind of goes to show just, you know, how much of the army Mark Antony has with him yeah. if they're uh, desperately recruiting. And how important it is. This shouldn't be a surprise at all, I guess, but how important it is to have experienced troops. Mm. Dio tells us, I like this quote, in this way, they provided Antony with his excuse for hostility. 
So there's a lot of who's going to strike first. And Antony's sort of, well, they're sending an army against me. So now I have a reason to fight. Mm. And then he kind of gives you the other side of this, the backhander, although he was eager to make war in any case. And Antony says to the envoys who are still trying to come and make peace that they're not treating him rightly or fairly as compared with the lad, <laughs> which Dio says is, means Caesar. Just just an offhand, you know. But... And, and of course, Caesar, he means Octavian. Mm. It's interesting to note that Appian talks about Octavian, but Dio throughout calls him Caesar, ah, which is okay. his rightful title, but yeah. it's very confusing. So Antony puts forward this possible way for peace by asking for things that he knows the Senate won't give him. Mm. All right, so he says... Or rather, Octavian will never accept as well. He says he'll give up Gaul and his armies. It's a big thing. If his own soldiers are given the same reward as Octavian's. So his veterans are going to be given land and, and, you know, paid for. Plus, can you please elect Brutus and Cassius as consul? And he knows that Octavian is not going to accept the assassins of Caesar as consuls. He's also perhaps strategizing, according to Dio, that this is playing up to Brutus and Cassius because he's going against Decimus, who's one of the assassins. But if he can get in good with Brutus and Cassius, then maybe he'll have them on side. This is how Antony, and he's not the only one, is trying to play all of the players here. And so I suppose from later history, we think of Antony as one of the people who opposes the murderers of Caesar. But at this point, he's very happy to play along with them if it'll benefit him. Yeah. So negotiating in bad faith there. Yeah. And they're also discontented because they've been given what they regard as rubbish provinces. And I'm sorry to these places. They're both beautiful. Crete <laughs> and Cyrene. Yeah. Just not powerful enough bases for them. Mm. So they've gone east to recruit armies themselves. Hirtius and Octavius head north. They don't really meet much resistance on the way, do they? No, they capture Bologna, which is now Bologna, which is kind of an important central northern base. Dio tells us, I like this little anecdote too, that they can't cross the river that's near Mutina, so they can't get there. And they need to tell Decimus Brutus that they're on the way so that he doesn't just give in to Antony. And they send messages on a lead sheet. So they write a message on a piece of lead, mm. fold it up like a piece of paper, give it to a diver to go across the river and uh, give it to Decimus so that he knows they're on their way. He can wait it out. Mm. And eventually they do reach Mutina. They get there first, but there's a really big army of Antony on way. He's brought four legions from Macedonia, so he has got his legions from Macedonia. Right, okay. They're not keen to fight straight away, uh, Octavian and Hirtius. They know Panzer's coming with the cavalry, not just cavalry infantry, but, you know, with the extra troops. And in the meantime, Decimus and the people of Mutina, who I feel sorry for in all of this, mm. um, are really suffering. They've run out of supplies and there's famine in the city. Yeah. They didn't ask for this, and now Decimus has brought this on them. Okay, so you've got all these troops amassing north, quite close to Rome, actually. I'd be feeling uncomfortable about that. So uh, what's happening in Rome at the moment in the other battlefield, which is the floor of the Senate? Well, Cicero's uh, up to his public speaking. According to Appian, Cicero took the lead by public speaking. So we're 20 years after Cicero was consul. Mm. 
And I feel like he's, he's sort of reliving that. It's, it's exactly 20 years. He was consul in 63. This is his uh, This is his moment so, yeah, to come yeah, back. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a public enemy and he's going to stand against him just like during his consulship he had with Catiline. Mm. So Appian says, he held frequent assemblies, procured arms by inducing the armorers to work without pay, collected money and exacted heavy contributions from the Antonians. So he's kind of fining them for being on Antony's side. Right, yeah. And Dio tells us how dire things are. This is why Cicero has to do this. There's no money left. There right. is no money to fund this war. This is in Dio, book 46, 31. He says they can't even fund most of the festivals. They're just kind of... There are a lot of festivals. There are a lot of festivals, <laughs> but they're very important. Mm. And so it's like triage, which are the really important ones that we have to spend money on. The Senate has, has now declared war on Antony but there's no money to pay for it. Mm. So this is what they actually do. This is the detail, according to Dio, of what Appian has said about Cicero getting money in. He gets the senators to contribute the 25th part of their wealth. Now, 25th part doesn't sound that much, but they have a lot of They're wealth. They're very wealthy men. <laughs> and this is my favorite bit. Also, four obols for each roof tile of all the houses in the city that they own themselves or occupied as tenants. Oh, so it's a rich tax. Yeah, it is. And four obols isn't very much. That's a Greek coinage. Yeah, but there's a lot of roof tiles. There are a lot of roof tiles. How do they calculate this? I suppose it's just by measuring the roof. But (laughs) it's a strange way of doing it, but absolutely it is. You've got a lot of houses, you contribute to this wall. Mm, Yeah. The guy with big roof tiles is laughing through all of this. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) That's the effort of making money to face off against Antony. But the Senate is hardly a united front in all of this. There's always divisions in the Senate and... One of them, a man called Publius Ventidius, he goes to bring two more legions over to Antony's cause. And according to Appian, and this is another one of those places where scholars doubt, or they're not quite sure whether to believe Appian, because it's not anywhere else. You'd expect Cicero to talk about this somewhere if it happened. He brings them to Rome to seize Cicero. This looks to me like, again, the same kind of threat Cicero said was happening in 63 when he was consul. Mm. Catiline was going to come and assassinate him. So, don't know. It's it's considered a bit suspect whether that was actually happening. But when Tidius does go off to retrieve these legions, the quote from Appian is really it's really stark. They seized most of the women and children in a panic, and Cicero himself fled from the city. That's at three sixty six. Yeah. Appian. So while Hirtius and Octavian are up north, pretty much camped outside the camp that is outside Mutina. Panzer is recruiting his young green troops and is going to head north. Hmm. But he encounters the troops of Antony who come back to kind of meet him and cut him off. Yes. Now, we don't have much of an account of this from Dio. Dio doesn't really concentrate on the battles. So most of our source is Appian. Mm -hmm. We also have another account of this battle from someone who was there and writes a letter to Cicero the next day. So we know the battle happens on the 14th of April, 43. Yeah. And then there is a letter from a man called Sulpicius Galba written on the 15th, which gives quite a different account. So I think just to avoid confusion... We'll give the historical account of Appian, yeah. and then we might have a look at some of the differences in Galba's letter. Yeah, Otherwise, okay. I think you'll be very confused, because they don't all match up. So an interesting diversion here. So this is at Forum Galorum. Yes, which is not very far from Mutina. Okay. Antony places his two best legions hiding in a marsh, says Appian. Yeah. And he occupies a position between the two forces, close to Forum Galorum, so he can see both of them. Panzer, 
and his troops become aware of this because, to quote Appian, there was a suspicious agitation of the rushes, then a gleam here and there of shield and helmet, and Antony's praetorian cohort suddenly showed itself directly in their front. The Martian legion, surrounded on all sides and having no way to escape, ordered the new levies, if they came up, not to join in the fight, lest they should cause confusion by their inexperience. Mm. They've got no faith in those newbies. Yeah, so the new levies are the new people that they've recruited. Yeah. It is a lovely, uh, well, lovely is the wrong word for battle, but it's very evocative Mm. uh, description by Appian there. A gleam here and there of shield and helmet. I like that one. Yeah. Appian makes it sound uh, very exhaustive and, and chaotic. The new troops, they're inexperienced. They're meeting Antony's veterans, essentially. Yeah. And it is really fierce fighting. Appian says, for example, at chapter 68, every blow found a target, but instead of cries, there were only wounds and men dying and groans. So they're wiping each other out. Mm. Specifically, Antony is wiping out Panzer's troops. So eventually Panzer retreats with his forces. Antony is refrained from attacking the Martian legion, the Martians as being a troublesome business. It's <laughs> <which is> quite <laughs> a phrase by the translator there. But he fell upon the new levies and made a great slaughter. They're pretty much wiped out. So they refrain from attacking the Martians. So they don't attack the, the veteran legion. Yeah, the the people who are going to give them a challenge, mm. but they're going to go after the new recruits just simply yeah. to thin out the numbers. Yeah. Brutal. I mean, it's it's brutal, but yeah. it's, it's the kind of awful thing that happens in war, isn't it? So Panzer's forces are destroyed and the consul himself is, is mortally wounded. Yeah, he gets a javelin in the side. He will eventually die on the 22nd of April, so just over a week later. Mm. I thought you would enjoy that Dio, just a little earlier in chapter 33 of book 46, has some great omens about this conflict. Ah, I missed omens. (laughs) (laughs) And they they seem to be directed specifically at Panzer, so that's why I bring them in here. Yeah. Quite lengthy, but the ones I noted are they mostly involve blood. Right, blood coming out of places you wouldn't expect it to. And they concern Panzer himself, the places he's been, and, and it includes a statue Minerva near Mutina, which sheds blood and then milk. I don't know how to interpret that, but presumably the Romans did. And there's blood just appearing in all of these. Even the sacrifices they carry out before the battle, they can't tell what's going on in the organs because there's so much blood. Okay, and this is a indication that's things aren't going to go well for Panzer, specifically. Certainly how it's interpreted by Dio. Okay. (laughs) So it looks like Antony has won at this point, but he's turned away by the approach of Hirtius, who has come towards this conflict south from Mutina. He's been waiting at Mutina with Octavian. And this is the only thing really that stops Antony. And of course, he's got a fresh army, whereas Antony's troops have been through this, as we've seen, exhausting battle, exhausting Mm. and very bloody. And they think they've won. So they were, according to Appian, on their way back, singing in triumph and keeping no sort of order. (laughs) This is very much (laughs) wagging his finger. And this is going to lead to trouble because they're not ready to be drawn up into battle lines and they're... He doesn't actually say it, but, you know, they're probably having a drink and carousing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Appian has said already that Hirtius took the two legions which had deserted from Antony. So this must have been particularly, I think, bitter for Antony that he's now encountering these troops who had been his troops previously. There's kind of the choice of the new recruits or these experienced troops of Antony, and Hirtius is no fool. 
He recognizes the value of experienced troops, says Appian in chapter 65. Mm. So Octavian has got his little Praetorian cohort. You know, he's got the pro-Praetorian command. And they're not going to be any match for Antony's troops, even if they are exhausted. Appian continues to say in chapter 70 that Antony's troops, the Antonians, got themselves in line under compulsion. So they're all in disorder. They suddenly draw up. And they actually do pretty well, as I've mentioned, Appian, very pro-Antony, mm. and performed against this foe also many splendid deeds of valor. But being wearied by their recent exertions, they were overcome by the fresh army opposed to them, and the greater part of them were slain in this encounter by Hirtius, mm. which is, I don't know. I don't want to say sad. These are brutal warlords and armies, but they've won this battle, they think, and then it does them no good because Hirtius just comes and destroys them. The other side of this is that Octavian's Praetorian cohort was completely wiped out by Antony's troops. Mm. So Hirtius only loses a few men. But overall, this is Appian, the losses amounted to about half the troops on each side, which seems really extreme to me. Yeah. Um, So this is after the battle with Pansa. I guess it's Octavian's troops being lost and about half of Antony's. So they're considerably diminished by this battle. Okay. And you said at the top that we get a a different account in a letter from uh, Sulpicius Galba that he sent to Cicero and wrote the next day. Yeah. So this is in Cicero's collected letters, uh, letters to his friends, although this is a letter from his friend. This is book 10, letter 30. So who was Galba? He was one of the men in charge of these troops, I guess, wasn't he? Yes, and he had been one of the assassins of Caesar. Mm. Partly he was annoyed with Caesar because of an affair that Caesar had had with his wife, so that may have played into his reasoning there. And he's also the great-grandfather of the future emperor, Galba. Okay. Not exactly the same name. Ah, right. That, that's a tip-off, <laughs> generally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very limited naming in, in Rome, so not always, but yeah. So what did this letter say then? So it's Letters to His Friends, Book 10, Number 30. Galba had arrived in the battle with the consul Panza, and he does not describe it as an ambush by Antony's troops. He says, Antony led out two legions, In this strength, he advanced to meet us, thinking we had only four legions of recruits. But in fact, the previous night, Hirtius had sent us the Martian legion and two Praetorian cohorts. So he doesn't describe it as an ambush. He says, he's reading Antony's mind, that Antony thinks that he's only got the raw recruits to fight. Yeah. And he also says that, I guess, he's kind of implying that there's not much leadership going on with Pansa because he says it's impossible to hold back this experienced group of troops. So they're forced to follow them. So they're kind of, troops are leading them into battle as opposed to the commander ordering it. Mm. He doesn't say that outright. He does say, and maybe this is where the ambush idea comes from, that Antony has led Galba and uh, Panza, that group, to think that there are no legions there on Antony's side. In fact, he had six legions with him, but he's only showing the light-armed troops and the cavalry. Panza sees that his own legion is advancing, which is something he hasn't ordered. So he gets the recruits to follow him through the marsh, which sounds like dangerous business, marching through a marsh, and draw battle lines. 
and Antony suddenly leads the forces out of Forum Galorum and there is very fierce fighting. This is something the letter agrees with Appian on, that the fighting is uh, really brutal. But it sounds a lot more conventional, drawing up lines, having a battle kind of thing. Yeah, it does. And that there's some subterfuge going on, but it's only in terms of Antony having legions Antony holding his cards back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Galba himself is with the tough veteran Martian legion, which throws one of Antony's legions back. But then they're surrounded by cavalry, and then it does become very confusing, um, and he has to retreat. He says he's pursued by Antony's troops. This is the most terrifying part of it for me, reading this letter. But he throws his shield over his back, over his shoulders, and manages to escape. And, and he also says that luckily his own side realizes who he is, which uh, part of the interpretation of this letter is that that's why he's got his shield in a prominent position, not just to defend himself, but so they can see he's yeah. on their side and they don't try and kill him. This is what happens when there's Roman against Roman, I suppose. Yeah, it doesn't help, <laughs> does it? <laughs> You've got to look twice before you thrust it against someone. It sounds like a, a victory mainly for, for Panzer and his troops in this retelling. Yeah, I mean, he says it is a victory. It actually says the last line of the letter, you know, an achievement thing, he literally says, a victory. The rest of the battle is quite similar to Appian in some ways, but he does add that two eagles and 60 standards of Antony's have been brought in. It is a victory. Whoa. Now, Galba clearly hadn't heard that Panzer had been wounded and it would turn out to be a fatal wounding. And this turns up in one of Cicero's later letters. But at this point... From his point of view on the ground, even though he's had to retreat, mm. it looks like uh, his side have done well. So it just shows me how confusing battle is yeah. from the point of view of the individual. Okay, There's not really any way of reconciling these two accounts very easily. Yeah, yeah. Although he's writing to Cicero the very next day. I can kind of buy that he hasn't got a full account of what happened, especially if he hasn't heard about Panzer's injury at that point or doesn't think that it's notable enough to put in the letter. No, I mean, he's been right in the middle of it yeah. and he doesn't have the overview, which presumably came, would have to come by it, that be an official account. Mm. Panzer may have not been well enough to write it, but it'd have to come back to the Senate. It's still uh, got enough time to write a letter. <laughs> I know, that's one of the astounding things about it that, I mean, I guess we do have people writing from battlefields. We have accounts from later wars, mm. but... Um, after the battle, maybe there's not much to do. Maybe the second page of the letter got lost. You know. <laughs> Dear Cicero, things are great in Mutina. Lovely weather. Wish you were here. <laughs> well, From Galba with love. <laughs> the, these letters were edited for publication <laughs> at the very least. But we do have the end of the letter. We do have him saying, you know. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> Farewell. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Toodle pip. All right. So regardless, there is a battle. There is troops lost on either side. The new recruits didn't sound like they're going, well, Panzer is mortally wounded. That's the thing that happens. And there is still a siege going on. You've got Hurtius and Octavian waiting outside of Mutina. You've got Antony and his troops directly outside of Mutina. You've got Decimus Brutus running out of food in Mutina. Yeah. Okay, so... I, I, I would say Mutina and Decimus. <laughs> okay. We've got potato and potato, but yes. we're, we're pretty much on the same page. <laughs> So what happens uh, during this siege then? Well, Antony, oh, Antony. I mean, from Appian's account, he sort of changes his mind and this doesn't help. And this happens later with Antony too, much, much later. Mm. Anyway, so Antony gets presented as this very, very experienced, but at vital times indecisive general, in my view. He decides at this point to wait Decimus out. 
to make the horrible business of famine do the job for him, mm. to harass him daily, as uh, Appian puts it, but wait until there's no more food and strength in the city. Yeah. At the same time, Octavian and Hirtius are there and they try and make Antony come out into battle. Now, Antony knows that his army, exhausted, remember, isn't a match for even what's left of Octavian and Hirtius's army. So he's kind of caught in this bind of, I want to just stay where I am. But what if Octavian and Hirtius manage to break into the city and mm. bring supplies in? Then the whole thing is lost. So Octavian and Hirtius kind of circle around Mutina. They go to where the siege is lighter and they do try to break in. So they try to, to make Antony think this way, I guess. I'm kind of going at this moment, who's the one who's being besieged? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I guess the one that's starving to death. But um, yeah, Antony has made himself a victim of the siege by creating this situation where he just has to wait. He's got supplies coming in, but he doesn't want to go into open conflict, but he has to move troops or he feels he has to move troops to try and block them. Mm. Uh, as usual, or, well, certainly in this part of the narrative, Dio doesn't give us very much here. Appian, though, implies that Antony's strategy could have worked if he'd just held fast. But he was too worried about Octavian and Hirtius' ability to relieve Mutina. So he leads his troops out. Oh, uh, so he, he calls off the siege. Uh, he doesn't call it off, but he feels that he has to draw Octavian and Hirtius away. And the only way to do that is to lead troops out into battle. Oh, okay, yeah. And Appian tells us, chapter 71, book three, Antony ordered up other legions from other camps, but they came slowly uh, by reason of the suddenness of the call or the long distance. So the army of Octavian won the victory. Hirtius even broke into Antony's camp where he was killed fighting mm. near the general's tent. So we don't get a lot of detail in Appian either. We get more detail in the previous battle. Yeah. <laughs> the earlier battle. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have a battlefield letter yeah. from Mutina. But basically, terrible losses on both sides, I guess. Mm. Terrible losses in Mutina, because presumably a lot of people have died of famine. Mark Antony loses the battle, loses the siege. But Hirtius is killed. So yeah. both consuls killed now. That's a, well, one on the way out, but that's a, a major loss for, mm. for Rome's credibility. You're right. He doesn't die until the 22nd, mm. but yeah, that will be the net result of this. Octavian retrieves Hirtius's body, but he barely gets away. Think how history could have been different if, that, if he hadn't got away. Mm. Antony makes, in his view, a strategic retreat from Mutina, and he hopes to join up with the legions that. When Tidius, remember him, mm. um, was bringing nearby from Picanum. Dio, however, gives us a pretty dim view of Octavian's part in this. Uh, to quote him, Book 46, Chapter 38 Upon the defeat of Antony, not only was Hirtius saluted as imperator by the soldiers and by the Senate, but likewise Vibius, although he had fared badly, Vibius is Panzer. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Panzer, although he had fared badly, and as you say, is on his way out, and Caesar, who's Octavian, although he had not even been engaged. So he hadn't even taken part in the fighting, according to Dio. Yeah. But they all get honoured. Okay. And Imperator is a big deal, that your soldier's calling you Imperator. It's a big honour. One of many big deals that Octavian gets mm. in this episode, I guess. You can't help feeling that Octavian is very, very lucky. He has a charmed career in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see him as being influential to this encounter, 
he didn't swing the battle either way, it seems. The good luck part for Octavian, and it's terrible to say this, is that the consuls died. Mm -hmm. And suddenly that leaves Octavian as the man who comes away from the battle against Antony with an even bigger force behind him, a more united force, and it's Octavian or nothing else. Yeah. All right. So Antony goes north and he meets with, as you said, Ventidius and his three legions, uh, hoping that more people, Lepidus, etc., will join him. Yeah, I do like this quote from, as I say, a seemingly very pro-Appian. So he spoke, being a man who was no coward in a dangerous situation. This is just after a speech of Antony. Mm. And with these words, immediately struck camp and made off towards the Alps. That's kind of the end of that section. You can just see Antony striding off towards the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> so he's hoping that Lepidus and Plancus are going to join him. The Senate knows it's likely he'll try this. So they write, or they will write very soon to Lepidus and Plancus to try and get them to counter Antony. So mm. everybody's kind of jockeying for who's going to get whose troops on their side. And Lepidus plays, as we'll see, He's and Ventidius has as well. Just who will I join with? I'll see who looks a more attractive proposition at any time. Yeah. See who's the last man standing. Yeah. Okay. This is quite a smart tactic at this point. Octavian is left outside Mutina in kind of the strange position of he just saved the skin of somebody who so badly betrayed his father, uncle. Adopted father. He's his father at this point. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, Decimus Brutus was one of the assassins. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's very weird dynamics going on in this period. There's no obvious enemies, I mean, except for Cicero and Antony. They're pretty clear. <laughs> Everybody else is sort of moving around. <laughs> to the bitter end, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Decimus tries to meet with Octavian, wants to make up to him. He's really scared. Scared of this 19-year-old. Mm, that's yeah. a lot of troops that he's got. Yeah. Yeah. Many witnesses say that an evil spirit had deceived him and that he'd been led into the conspiracy against Caesar by others. So he's, he's trying to say, you know, I didn't really mean it. I didn't really mean to kill your dad. Octavian is not going to be reconciled easily. He's, he's angry. He says, according to Appian, chapter 73, I'm not here to rescue Decimus, but to fight Antony, mm. with whom I may properly come to terms sometime. But nature forbids that I should even look at Decimus or hold any conversation with him. Let him have safety, however, as long as the authorities at Rome please. Wow. If he really said something like that, and you never know with speeches in Roman history texts, then it shows kind of great. It's what the Romans admire, kind of restraint. Mm-hmm. I will do what Rome tells me to, which is a, it's a sh- lot of shifting sands at this point in the late Republic as to what that means. But Octavian, and later on when he becomes Augustus, will always kind of run this line. I did it for Rome. I did what the Senate ordered. He never claims to be acting outside of this authority at yes. the same time that he does. As long as the Senate orders what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How does the Senate react? You already said consul. But yeah, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't wait. I yeah. couldn't hold back. Well, there's a Thanksgiving of 50 days, which is a lot, and Dio even ups it and says it's 60 days. I don't know if he's just misread it there. Now, they, they couldn't afford festivals and charge for roof tiles, you know? What's, what's going on here? They're very thankful. Yeah, as we're told by Appian, a longer festivity than the Romans had ever decreed even after the Gallic or any other war, mm. which... Given that it's against their own, yeah, that's it's becoming very fraught in the late Republic. What You'd think any they of want these to keep this quiet? Yeah, things mean. 
Well, they've had so many civil wars by this point. Panzer and Hirtius's forces are actually given to Decimus because they need something there to counter Antony. Mm, okay. So he's got to carry on with that. And Octavian, who thought he was getting all of this, feels disregarded. Now, this is weird because he does become Suffolk Consul. But at the same time, according to Appian, he wants more. There was nothing about Octavian in the decrees, and his name was not even mentioned. He was forthwith disregarded as though Antony were already destroyed. Mm. So there's this feeling that the Senate doesn't need him anymore. Yeah, yeah. I guess from this perspective, he's only honoured for as long as he was useful. Yes, and I feel like Appian's giving us quite an extreme view of how Octavian feels here. Dio gives us a very cynical view of him becoming consul. He says Caesar was charged, I mean, he wasn't charged officially, but there's rumours going around, I think is what he means, with having caused their death, the deaths of the consuls, that he might succeed to the office, which I'm sure anyone really believes. Mm. But as you've already said, he does benefit from both of them dying. He adds that the Senate had already abolished any privileges which might have given an individual supreme power contrary to the established custom. So any power contrary to what should be happening in the Republic. That's a book 46, chapter 49. So I think that's implying that this is the power that Octavian was expecting to get, more than consul, mm. more honours. And he doesn't get that because the Senate is saying, oh, no, 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 we're not going to have any more dictators. So Octavian sounds like at, at this point, you know, he's, he's given himself a bit of credit for winning this battle against Antony and feels like he's due. Yeah, indeed. He won't give his troops up. He refuses to give them to Decimus, which is what the Senate has ordered. So mm. despite us saying that he always claims he does what Rome orders, Appian, I guess, gives him some reason for this in Panza's dying speech, which takes two whole chapters. Yeah. Because a wound in your side doesn't stop you from talking. <laughs> he starts off by saying, you know, I loved Caesar as a, as a father. And he says, I'm handing my troops to you. So Panza's handing his troops to Octavian which he has no right to do. The Senate will determine where they go, according to precedent. Yeah, it's very much, you know, taking a personal ownership over your own troops. No. Yeah, yeah. which is not what the Republic <laughs> is meant to do, but it's been happening a lot. Yeah. So Octavian, I guess, could bring that up as a reason for not handing over the troops, but he specifically says these troops will never follow an assassin of Caesar. Mm. Indeed, some of Decimus's soldiers desert to Octavian, according to Appian, so that kind of furthers this idea that they're not happy being around one of Caesar's assassins. So Decimus Brutus can't really continue with this, or he's not willing to pursue Antony or to be as a, as a kind of a buffer. Yeah. He flees from Italy and he's going to link up or try to link up with Brutus and Cassius, mm. so the kind of chief assassins in Macedonia, which they've gone east and that's where they're recruiting troops. Um, but he doesn't get there. He's intercepted by a Gallic chief who is loyal to Antony and is executed. Wow. Okay. So it's one of those deaths where, you know, he survives this siege yeah. with famine and then the battles that are going on around him, but he just gets killed off anyway shortly after. Okay. And where does that leave Octavian? Well, as consul in yeah. 43, unbelievably, 19 and 20 in that year of his consulship. And... Somebody who claims authority but is not getting the recognition he wants from the Senate. Somebody who's still being used by the likes of Cicero. Cicero is very pro-Octavian at this point. Mm. And, of course, Cicero is setting him up again 
to go against Anthony, but there's a limit to the power Cicero is going to have here. And he's, he's got a massive army to command, whether it's rightfully his to take or not, really. <laughs> Indeed, yes, that's perhaps the most important thing. He now has these troops that he's refused to give up. That was Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Emperors of Rome, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.